So <clears throat> I think to your point about trying to make sure that democracy doesn't really grow in the region, I, I my reading of the situation indicates that this is what the UAE is looking for. If democracy was really to flourish in the region and voting became a thing in the UAE and voting for your leaders and even not just voting against or for your leader, but outright criticism, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, if those things were a reality in the UAE, we'd have a, a completely different set of rulers in the country, you know, and it wouldn't be a family that runs the country, it would be a group of elected officials. And so that has a real threat to the current ruling family in the UAE. And so for them, if democracy begins to take hold in Tunisia, well, that's a problem because next door to Tunisia is Algeria, a, a very large oil producer, natural gas producer as well. If, if true democracy takes hold there, it goes on to Libya, which is another oil producer, but also Morocco, which is run by a royal family. And one of the interesting to, one of the interesting things to note about Morocco is as soon as the Arab Spring began, the king sort of immediately moved to have a parliament to have some of the powers that were held by the king transferred to parliament in a way to preempt any sort of revolution um, that would outstir the royal family in Morocco. And so that's a real sign of of worry for the UAE and the the Saudis. And to this day, there are attempts to sort of by the loyalty or you know bring on board the moroccan royal family to the same plot to the same plan of making sure that you know it's not real democracy it's not really a a, a transition that's successful pseudo like in egypt where yes there are elections but as we all know those que- elections are questionable so the idea that you know the uae wants to rule by proxy i can i can understand where you're where you're seeing the parallel here and i can agree to that i think the uae in its own right is a country which is trying to create and identify itself but also seeing what its neighbors are doing so if you look at qatar or qatar it's it's taken it's taken hold of one of the very largest you know profiles in the, in the world which is the taliban um uh, an U.S. peace deal, right? So Qatar, which is a small country by any measure, non-economic, obviously, is home to where the Taliban and the U.S. have struck a deal, right? And so the U.S. has agreed to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, a war that's been a losing war for so many years now. And so that sort of brings authority to to Qatar. One of the other things to note is after Sultan Qaboos died in Oman, one of the first things that um, the Emir of Qatar, uh, Sheikh Thani bin uh, Sheikh Tamim bin Thani, uh, did was he flew out to Iran. He met in Tehran with the leaders of the Iranian regime, and so for him that was for him and for the you know for the region that was a clear sign that he was he was looking to replace what Sultan Qaboos used to do. Right or what you know what what was Tukhabuz used to symbolize, which is a me, a mediator and a broker for peace, someone who has relation, good relations with all sides in the region, um, and that's quite a powerful position to have, you know. And so for the UAE to to want to be able to rule through proxy, whether it's in Egypt through a Sisi or Libya through Haftar or Sudan through Himeti, or even in Yemen through the Houthis. Um, or their militias in Yemen um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a sign that 
one, it doesn't want stability in the region. Um, if it and it wants things to be favorable for the agenda that the UAE dictates. But two, it doesn't want to have competition. It doesn't want to have competition when it comes to global relations. It doesn't want to have competition when it comes to the economy. It doesn't want to have relations uh, competition when it comes to um, just outright absolute rule. You see. Um, and so I, I can agree with some of the parallels that you've drawn here uh, when it comes to ruling by proxy. And then for, for for the third for the third headline, I believe it was the 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 ports. Yeah. So so back to that question. Um, Sometimes you know, just before the the revolution in Sudan, the the ports authority in Port Sudan, which is a state um, in northeast of Sudan, um, was looking to sign a deal with a Filipino company essentially to sell the port of Sudan or, or sell the rights to the port operations to this company registered out of the Philippines, but essentially was uh, you know tied and linked to the UAE itself. And so people protested, it made headlines in the country, and so they said, We don't want anything to do with the UAE. We've seen how they've done away with ports in Yemen, uh, the ports of Aden, for example, have been shut down completely. Um, and this deal was stopped. And now DP World, which is actually, you know, outright owned by the UAE government and Dubai. So I think it was called Dubai um, DP World, Dubai Ports. Um, essentially, it was a leveraged buyout of this company, which was a US company. And the UAE is now taking hold of it, um, which, again, shows you that the UAE wants to influence the region in any way, shape or form, not just through military, but also through the economy. The, th that company has come to Sudan looking to secure the rights to the port and one of the interesting things to note here is turkey uh you know began to, you know began working on construction of sawakin which is another port city in sudan and so sawakin has a historical uh, effect here because back during the times of the ottoman state the pilgrims from sudan actually used to land in um, Sawakin and then make their way to Mecca and Medina to the Hijaz region of Saudi, what is now Saudi Arabia from Sawakin. So it sort of has, uh, you know, it, it's, it's got historical relevance, but also it's a very important port in the region. And so part of the security issue for the, for the, for the ports on the region, if you look at Aden, if you look at the port of Jeddah, if you look at Port Sudan, Sawakin, um, Port Said in Egypt, the Suez Canal, the Suez Canal, all of that is a, waterway essentially to what is the occupied territories of Palestine and so the Zionist regime in Israel essentially is looking to secure the, re the, the area it doesn't want any you know unfriendly elements to be taking full control of the region or at least that waterway and so one of the biggest allies for the Zionist regime is actually the UAE with reports confirmed reports of the foreign minister Abdullah bin Zayed meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in New York. And so there are relations, whether openly or not, is irrelevant, but there are relations between the UAE and Israel, right? For more context, if you look at when Jamal Abdel Nasser was president of Egypt, one of the first things he did was he didn't want to sell Tiran and Sanafir. Uh, and he said, these are Egyptian islands and we will ban any, you know, any vessel that wants to cross this waterway and go to what is, what is essentially occupied Palestine. Right, Israel, um, and so that caused grief for the Israelis, and so they realized that this is an essential, an essential waterway, an essential lifeline to the country. You're talking about 
goods being supplied in and out of the country. You're talking about, you know, if they were ever attacked, one of the ways it could defend itself is through the through the water or in the water. And so making sure that the UAE has a foothold in the region on that waterway is important. And so Egypt sold its two islands to Saudi Arabia very controversially. And the UAE is essentially saying, sorry, the, the Saudis are essentially saying they're ours. And we're going to keep them as ours. We're going to abide by all international treaties, which is essentially saying we are trying to make peace with Israel. Right. And so they're trying to pave the way for an official, I don't want to say get together, but essentially an official peacemaking gesture um, and actually signing a peace, a, a declaration of peace between the Saudis and the Israeli uh, regime. And so that waterway, you know, marks an important chapter in where the UAE is going, where the Saudi government is going, the Saudi royal family, but also where the state of Israel is going. And so the geopolitics in that area, if I can wrap it up, is essentially the the UAE wants to make sure that there is no real peace in the region where there is actual democracy and the right to vote and the right to protest. Um, and it wants to do that by proxies in Yemen and in in in, in uh, Egypt and in Libya, and if they could in Sudan, and um, they failed in 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 Tunisia. But one of the other things that he wants to do is economically, he wants to take control of the ports. Jabal Ali is one of the biggest ports in the region, but Ad, yeah, which is which is in Dubai, and there's a free zone there, and there are other free zones in the country, in you know Fujairah and other uh, other areas. But the the Dubai Jabal Ali free zone is one of the most profitable for the country, and so if Aden starts going online and competing, that becomes a problem. Right. If Port Sudan starts competing, that becomes a problem, and so you're talking about other countries on the Mediterranean like Libya and Tunisia. If they start competing, that's seen as a threat. But also the waterway of Port Sudan as well, the Red Sea is seen as, an, as a security issue for the Israeli government. And so while they can't really direct and influence countries directly, the, U the Israeli government has opted to co-opt the Emiratis into doing their bidding for them. Can I also just make a, okay, can I just make a point, uh, bearing in mind the things that you said? Now, it's all well and good seeing and analyzing and talking about these issues theoretically. But, you know, in the manifest reality in Sudan, for instance, there are dire economic consequences. I mean, today in Sudan, there isn't any, well, there isn't any, anything of, anything sustainable. I and mean, the, 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 the economy is, is very, very, very fragile and wavering. And so when we talk about foreign policy, why should we continue the road to democracy is what I'm asking, which which perhaps might be a little uh, a controversial question. You know, it's, it's it, like I said, it's all fair and well to talk about, you know, establishing democracy in the region and so on and so forth. But then again, if, if the situation is not so terrible within Sudan, why do why should people continue to to advocate for democracy and sovereignty and autonomy and all that or, or values? So... One of the selling points for democracy is stability, right? You have a democratic process where there's a peaceful exchange of power between the incumbent and the you know the elected party. So if you look at the U.S., for example, you know the transition of power has been peaceful for the past 150, 160 years, even with you know presidential assassinations and political coups. And I say political, I don't say military. 
the trans the stability that the U.S. economy and the U.S. political system has had is due to the idea of democracy to the actual implementation of democracy. If you have a stable political economy, political system, you have a stable economy, right? The two go hand in hand. If you have a turbulent economy, you have a turbulent political uh, system. And so the idea that, you know, why should we not have um, democracy? I'm not saying we should have the same democracy as the US or the UAE, sorry, or the UK or France, Germany, Italy, whatever. In, um, in 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 the European context or the American context, but democracy nonetheless, the ability to vote, to vote in the people that you want and to vote out the people that you don't want. Because with democracy, you have other things like accountability and transparency, right? Those are things that if you don't, if you do away with, you open the door to corruption, to the idea that you can have foreign influence affecting your policies. And so that then ties into stability. If I can't be accountable, if or, or, or let's say, for example, I'm a minister in Sudan, and I'm not accountable to anyone, not even the people who allegedly elected me. I can do away with all the laws that bind me and all the, 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 the etiquette and the moral values that I promise to uphold. Okay, And so I can start buying property. I can start registering land on my, on my own without anyone's worry or concern. I can do whatever I want, and I sh- and so I have absolute power. But that means that people who worked hard, who saved money, who borrowed and re- taken risks to buy land and to produce and to, you know, better themselves economically, are going to face a challenging adversary, which is someone who has unfettered power, has unfettered access, can do what they want. And so, if you multiply that by other producers or other people in the marketplace. It means I don't, you know, the small producers who essentially make up the middle class don't have a chance. And so it brings forth a monopoly. And in an economic sense, that's bad, but also in a political sense, that's worse because you stifle freedoms and then you people get angry and then you have revolutions and then you have more instability. And so this breeds generation after generation of, I don't want to say generations are used to this, but generations that see this as the norm. That, you know, democracy is this thing that the West enjoys, but we'll never get it. And it kills hope. And so there are multiple effects of, of, of get, doing away with democracy and promoting absolute power and dictatorship. Uh, okay, I would, I, would, I would like to know your point of view, your analysis economically of the current Sudanese economic reality and what should be done to fix or if, if it needs fixing it. So the... Sudanese economy is a complicated one, in the sense that the you know the previous government had its hand in literally everything, right? So there, the 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 government was both the private and the public face of the economy. If you're talking about bidding for government contracts, you had people who are related to government officials winning those contracts because their parent or cousin or uncle, or someone in the family, or a friend, um, made sure that the contract went their way, right? You're also talking about a cash economy. You know, there is there is a, a severe, severe lack of trust in the banking system, which also bred the latest illiquidity problem, right? Banks didn't have enough money in their vault to cash out uh, what people had in their accounts, which is another problem, right? What needs to, what's, what's happening in Sudan is, because there is no trust in the 
political system. There is no trust in the banking system. And people trade almost openly in a way that's based on cash. If you've got cash, I can deal with you. If you don't have cash, I can't do anything for you. I can't because I if you if you present me with a check, I can't take that check and withdraw my money out. I can deposit the check and then write someone else a check, but not everyone is willing to accept checks, right? And so that be, that that breeds a, 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 its own unique set of problems. One of the other problems that the economy has is that it was heavily reliant on oil. Once the South seceded in two thousand and eleven, and oil revenues began to dwindle, the government had no real, you know, income essentially. Tourism wasn't a thing. Agriculture wasn't a thing because as soon as this government took control or full control in 2000 they did away with or sorry after the discovery of oil in the late 1990s they turned away from agriculture and so the jazeera scheme was completely destroyed farmers had to burn their own crops because the government taxes were too high and so you're now left with no leg to stand on where before you had agriculture to support you and oil you depended solely on oil and got rid of your other leg and then when when the oil seceded in the south you lost that as well. So the government began introducing taxes. It sort of began dealing in dollars where you had actual government companies buying dollar from the central bank of Sudan and sell it in the black market for a higher exchange rate. And so once the government starts dealing in financial innovation like that, you're talking about huge movements in currency. And so you're devaluing your own currency because you want to make a tidy profit on the side. Whether the government knew that the effects of this or not is irrelevant now because that government's gone. But the challenges that it presents to the new government are multifaceted. So one of the first things that needs to happen is statistics, information. How much is the price of a lemon today compared to what it was two days ago, three days ago, a week ago, 10 days ago? We don't have that. The price of a lemon today is 12 or 13 pounds, Sudanese pounds. The price of a barrel of onions or a, ta- a, a can of onions, I should say, was what? What is it today? Who actually knows? You have multiple sellers selling at multiple prices the same product, right? So when you have instability in actual price fixing, actual supply as well, you're going you're gonna to see that consumers are unwilling to buy or unable to buy. And this is, this is, this is you know, notice that I said two things here. Price and supply if your price isn't st- steady at the same time across the re- across the economy you've got a problem of arbitrage i can buy cheap from the rural areas and come southern khartoum for much higher but also the second part is supply if khartoum is unable to supply citizens with the na- the, the the goods you know fruit and veg meat um any other services then you've got a problem or any other goods you've got a problem right um, and so the government sort of needs to understand, right, you know, what are my basket of goods that the average consu- the average citizen consumes? Let me measure the price differentials on a month-to-month basis. And that's how you calculate inflation, right? Once you understand how that's going, you can begin to tackle it. Just like the coronavirus, when they figured out the rate of infection, they de- the, each government decided to put into place or into effect its own set of lockdown measures. Some said you're not allowed to go out completely like China did, and some said you're allowed to go out for an hour a day like the UK did, right? So without that foundational knowledge, you can't begin to formulate a plan. So 
something on you know aside here one of the, on a recent conference here in Edinburgh I met with a few colleagues who personally knew the finance minister of Sudan Ibrahim Al Badawi um, and one of them actually wrote a book with him his name uh, is Samir Al Maqdisi and so I began asking Samir what his thoughts are on the Sudanese economy and what his thoughts are on Ibrahim Al Badawi and long story short it was very apparent that you know, the situation in Sudan is difficult and it's hard and the resolution isn't going to be easy. But my advice here is, or my take at least, my analysis is, Ibrahim al-Badawi hasn't grown up in Sudan in the past 20 years or lived in Sudan in the past 20 years, right? And so there are differences here between what he's able to contribute to on a global scale. And so if he's talking about the economy in Egypt or Morocco or Tunisia, when he was part of the Economic Research Forum, he can theorize about the benefit, the economic benefits of democratization. But when it comes to Sudan, the lack of knowledge, not just within the Ministry of Finance, but the cabinet, is economically costing. And so the first point of call is, why don't we use the Sudanese experts in the country? Why don't we use those resources? And why don't we stop excluding Sudanese nationals who have lived in Sudan to help us get out of this? Why can't we take into account their expertise, their experience, and move the country forward? And so that's my take on the situation. Um, and I think that, that that sort of interesting point there about the, perhaps a little bit more philosophically, but about the Eurocentric fetishism that we have post like in the post-colonial era, in a sense that we have been, and I think we've I've talked about this a little bit, but in the sense that there's, there's this sort of washed down binary between slave and master that we still have in our subconscious today, that we see it as, I mean, I, when you ask a lot of people, even people who are engaged politically in Sudan, about what, uh, about what you, th what would you see is the appropriate uh, move to make, and some people would argue that. Why don't we follow the European quote unquote? Why don't Why don't we follow the the European model? Just to say, just just to give a little input here, um, I think when people say that people don't understand the crisis that's happening in um, Spain and Greece and maybe Ireland, that are all EU members, and when you say Europe European, what does that mean exactly? So I, 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 I don't know the, the specific or the technical sort of the nitty-gritty details behind these, but when someone says to you, for instance, Musab, you know, why don't we implement European-style economic practices um, or models in Sudan? What, what's, your, what's your answer? And, and here I'm being very general. I'm not choosing words such as socialism or uh, liberalism or any of these sort of isms. So essentially the question is, why don't we import the European economic model and use it in Sudan? I think one of the things to note is Europe didn't become Europe the way we see it today overnight, right? It started with uh, the steel community and it sort of morphed into something greater and that morphed again and again and again and you had the European Union and the European nations join. And that took many, many years, right? And it came after the Second World War um, and countries like France and Germany were looking for economic stability as well as political stability. And so they joined forces economically as well. You know, economically at first, but then politically later. Importing 
the European model or any foreign model is never as easy as it sounds. One, because if you look at the European models, if you look at the different differentials in, in, in political and economic spheres between Germany and France, you'll see that they're very different. You see, or even between Germany and, and the Scandinavian countries like Sweden, right? They're very different. They have institutions that are different. They have tendencies and trends and consumer behavior that's different between them. But what they do have in common is the goal. The goal, the goal of economic stability, the goal of political stability, freedoms of speech, freedoms of movement, freedom of, freedoms of uh, religion, and, 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 and other freedoms as well. But essentially, those freedoms are essential, right? When you look at Sudan and you say, I want to import the European model, do you have freedom of expression? To some extent, yeah. Is it the same as in Europe? Not really. If we're looking at how it, how easy it is to be, start a business in Sudan, is it easy? No. Can you do it? Yes. Is it easy to access credit in Sudan? Not really. Is it, you know, are credit scores being tracked? No. Okay. Then how can we use some of the things that the Europeans use? Can we issue debt? No, we can't. We can borrow from banks. But then again, do we want to issue debt in Sudan? No. Because the, the, the economic system in Sudan sort of frowns down on the issuance of debt as a way to raise money, right? And that's based on the, principle of, the principles of Islamic finance. But then again, the European model doesn't really have Islamic finance. But it has other things that Sudan doesn't have. And so there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a big incompatibility issue when it comes to statements like, can we import the US model? Can we import such and such model? Because the characteristics of the economy there in Europe, in France, Germany, Italy, whatever, and Sudan are very different. And so it's sort of trying to say, trying to say, oh, one economic policy fits all sizes of an economy, right? Whatever policy the UAE, the, the European Union implements throughout its European countries or member states don't necessarily translate into applicable policies in Sudan. When you're trying to convert a cash economy overnight into a country that can track credit scores, can track credit card spending, can track consumer habits, can track inflation accurately, understands what inflation targeting is in an independent central bank, those are things that Sudan doesn't have. Sudan hasn't had these ever. And so introducing them is going to be a challenge. Maintaining them is going to be a challenge. And making sure that they're autonomous is also a challenge. A challenge that the European countries have mastered and successfully overcome over a number of decades. And so importing it is not the solution, essentially. I think what would be a solution here is, and I'm going off topic or going beyond your question a little bit, is creating a system that takes in, into consideration, one, the natural resources of Sudan to bring in, into the country much you know hard hard-earned cash or hard-earned foreign currency and so that helps correct the devalued currency but two also infrastructure countries like germany or sweden or france or italy have an infrastructure they have access to the internet they have access to telecommunication transportation networks are great they're able to trade not because they're able to register and actually build a company from scratch, but also they're able to physically trade. They're also physically able to electronically trade. 
And so that ability goes a long way into making sure that if someone has an idea, they can easily obtain credit or a loan to build an idea. They're able to register their idea without the fear of the government seizing unfairly or forging their, their, their you know, forging the documents, but also being able to have in place infrastructure that's able to bring whatever resources are needed, whether they're human or natural or intellectual. And so you need those things to be able to have an economy that's flourishing and able to progress and able to provide services and able to transition from an oil-dependent, previously agrarian economy into a fully-fledged manufacturing economy and a service provider later on. Just to be just to be a devil's advocate here, I would argue that this particular challenge, trying to find something that's an economic model that works, you know, not, not, not specifically directly for Sudan and only Sudan, but like something that's compatible with Sudan and, you know, at the same time to have a move towards democracy and, uh, and sovereignty that's, you know, without any sort of intervention and to stand on our, on, on our legs when, when, when I suppose there's, there's a lot of things that, that's against us. I mean, isn't, isn't, do you see anything in the future that's, that's promising uh, that could probably, I don't know, inspire a little bit of optimism in the youth? I think with social media um, being so readily available for for the youth to access, it's bringing a lot of information that was previously unavailable. So people who are going through changes or countries that go through changes across the world are now showcasing their changes online. The youth in Sudan is, has the ability now to see or has had the ability to see for some time now the alternatives, the alternatives to Omar Bashir, the alternatives to Himeti, the alternatives to war, the alternatives to poverty, the alternatives to famine. All these alternatives spark hope. And so having that as a target is great. But what needs to happen now is consistency and consistent performance. And not just by the government or the interior government, but also by the youth. So one of the things that, one of the mantras of the revolution was freedom, ju- uh, peace, and justice. And so there should be a consistent effort to hold to account any government, not just this interior government, any, but especially this interior government, to the principles of peace, real peace. What's happening in Darfur? What's happening in South Sudan? What's happening in Kurdufan? What's happening in Khartoum? You know, actual peace. There should be a consistent effort to make sure that the government is actually upholding these values and actually making progress. And if the government can't, for whatever reason, make progress economically or politically or socially, change that government. Yeah, that's that's scary because it means we're going to have a void or a vacuum where other pe- other forces can take place. But if the pressure is up, the youth the entire citizenry of Sudan can make sure that in that void or in that space of time where there is a void, undue forces aren't in control and have no chance of being in control. And as much as it it, it, it sounds theoretically pleasing or wonderful, the idea of unity and, you know, revolution, there are more of us than there are 
of them. And by us, I mean the youth, the citizenry, the people who want to transition into something more peaceful, into something more stable, into something more progressive, more flourishing economically, socially, justly, then there are other people who want to control power and seize power. And so for me, I think the hope here is that we're able to see other models where you know people are able to realize their ideas. You know, if you want to be an astronaut at eight, at eight years old, 23 years later, you can be an astronaut in the US. Why can't that be something in Sudan? Why can't I through an idea that I've had, be able to be the CEO of a successful company in Sudan and provide medical aid for a very, very, very discounted price and get rid of malaria. In South Italy now, mosquitoes don't carry malaria because they've invested in the, in the R&D and they've applied that research into eradicating that problem. To this day, malaria is a serious illness in Sudan. An illness so serious in Africa, actually, that the, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation spends quite a considerable amount of money trying to fight in Africa. But the Italians have done it. Why can't we import that technology or that will or that strength to Sudan? And with social media, with research, with reading news articles and the history of other nations and other political successes and failures, we can go forward and not just change our mentality into something that's hopeful, but something that's determined and willing and able. And then that translates into consistent performance, consistent output. And then once that's hit its mark, we will wake up and one day realize that we've actually built institutions because we've consistently built or we've consistently woke up in, woken up in the morning and put the government or held the government to account and put the government in its place when it stepped out of line by voting them out. And so we've instituted our version of democracy and we've instituted our version of the perfect economic model and our version of the perfect educational system, the perfect infrastructure, the perfect you know energy consumption and production systems. And so it's a question of what do we want? What's our vision? And then actually going out there and performing. And I think that's something that this government lacks, this interim government, is a clear sense of a unified vision, not just for themselves as a cabinet of ministers, but as people who are in charge and not volunteered themselves, but cherry-picked by a group of organizations let's say that were only united in getting rid of the previous regime and now is their only unity in vision and in practice but as soon as the previous regime died there was no unity not in vision not in character not in values nothing and so right now this current government is seeing the results of that lack of unity so for me that the 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 takeaway here is i will share my vision and change it so that we can all be part of one vision and together as a society we can build and we can sustain and we can continue to develop into the future well thank you for that educational conversation it's Muhammad Khojali and my brother Musab Khojali uh, with another episode of 
pod, the Philosophy Society podcast, and we just like to give Musab a thank you for for joining us today, and uh, hopefully we'll hear more from you in the future. Thank you very much. So, like, my salam, like, what's up?